All right, gang, welcome back. And I can say to myself, welcome back. It's been two weeks since I've been on the show, and what's going to make it weird is no Katie. Mr. Announcer guy got it wrong. But And there, you just lost half your audience. I right know. There. So, But for the half that stuck around, we brought in our favorite attorney ringer. So, Derek Simmons, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, always a good time, and I love the, uh, the, the other angle. The, it's like the liability management angle. Right, is that uh, my, my bomb, bomb, bomb? Right, that or just making uh, color and sound effects. Good work. So, uh, yeah, if you've if you not listened, you didn't notice, but for the last couple of weeks, I got some R and R, and it was fantastic. Went uh, back to the East Coast for a little while. Uh, saw some college buddies. Spent some time with family. Celebrated a milestone birthday for my father. And then the kids got to figure out, you know, this is the beauty of this, right? My wife's half Japanese, which means my kids respond really well with sunscreen. So they had a great time at the beach. Dad stayed under the umbrella a lot more, but still a lot of fun. And now batteries recharged, happy to be back in the saddle and here on the True Wealth Show. Fortunately, the economy's just been on coast while you were gone. (laughs) Well, the, the remarkable thing about it is, that uh, for the time that I was gone, uh, we yo-yoed around a lot, but we're right about the same place as, as when I left. So I suppose I will consider that a victory that the wheels didn't completely come off. But we had some pretty good volatility in there, and uh, that's just for the stock market. You know what people are really eyeballing right now is the bond market. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, we've talked about this, but you know, we'll we'll do a refresher and a pop quiz for for you, Derek. Um, how do relationship between how are yields determined in bonds? All right. So we've we've done this before. We have. And what happens is that the money looks for a place to go. Mm-hmm. And so when when stocks are down, then then people tend to go into bonds. Because it's the, usually it's a risk aversion trade, and because the demand goes up on bonds, mm-hmm. then so the, the yield price goes of the bonds down. go up. Nailed it, right? So what we need to know for all of you listeners out there is that uh, the relationship between the price of a bond and the yield on a bond, or any fixed income instrument for that matter, is inverse, right? So when bond prices go up, yields decline. And when bond prices go down, yields rise. It's counterintuitive. I always think of it like a teeter-totter, though, right? So one side goes down, the other side goes up. So bonds are like a teeter-totter. That's the way that operates. Um, the 10-year Treasury yield, which is a biggie because a lot of the mortgage markets pay fairly close attention to it, and it's a pretty good indicator of expectations of inflation. Right. If you so here, quiz number two, Derek. If yields are declining, what does that indicate about future inflation expectations? Yields are declining, and so that means so the, the the yield on the ten-year bond is going down. What would that imply about? expectations for inflation. Well, I'm skipping a couple steps here, but I would think that that people would expect inflation. Okay, so walk me through how you got there. Well, uh, I was skipping a couple of steps because they were steps I wasn't sure about, but uh-huh. well, the way I was getting there mm-hmm. was to say, well, remember yields fell because the stock market fell, more or less. Right. And if that happened, the stock market fell because 
or was related to um, worries about having money generally. So I'm going to fill in a couple of blanks. You're not you're not crazy, first of all. Well, I am, but not in this not in this way. Uh, but but let's let's just fill in a little bit of the exposition here. So if the markets are declining. Typically speaking, the stock market is viewed as a mechanism for pricing in future value, right? You purchase a stock today with the expectation that it will be worth more in the future because its future income stream is believed to be a higher potential than today, right? That's why it would go up in value. If you expected the income stream to be flat or negative, then you would pay less for it. That would drive prices down, right? So deflationary pressure yeah, drives prices. Yeah, so that's prices, the opposite direction. Right, that drives prices down. Expectations that future values are lower than present value. If your expectation is that future values are higher than present value, then you would expect things to go up. Now, are you 100% sure that's not what I just said? I am 100% <laughs> sure that's <laughs> not what you just said. Because if we think about it, now you're talking about the way the way money flows. A risk off trade or a risk aversion trade would be, hey, I'm not confident in the values of the stock market. Therefore, I will take my money out of the stock market and move it into the bond market, which is a theoretically more stable preservation mechanism, right? right? So if I was to do that and then it drove the price of bonds up and it drove the price the yield on bonds down, what that's really indicating to us is that the expectations for future values being higher aren't there. Right? So you're willing to lock up your money for a longer period of time for lower yield because you're not thinking you're going to get penalized significantly for future inflation. Which suggests that I don't think there's going to be inflation. Correct. There we go. Right. So while while your logic, I think what it was, was had we walked down the logic chain all at once, I kind of made you, I put you on the spot, right? But if you follow what's going on here, and you were very correct in that the bond market responds based out of fear, right? And so fear increases demand, increased demand drives up price and drives down yield. But the increase in demand because of fear isn't because the assets are going up in value, which is inflationary. It's a fear that they're going down in value deflationary pressure. So that's what makes the market really interesting now. The stock market is more or less, it, it peaked in uh, early June, or rather late June. I, I'm sorry, I'm not even looking at it. It was, it was late July, like July 28th or so. Uh, and then it's we're off about 5% from our highs on the S&P 500, similarly for the, for the Dow, and I think a little more for the NASDAQ. But the 10-year Treasury, that's been the interesting one where yields fell from somewhere at about 2.3% down to about 1.5%, or just a shade above that. That's a significant shift in yield. And what that implies is that there's a lot of fear that's been driving people into the 10-year Treasury market. Uh, and where's the demand coming from? Well, um, it could be from people that are afraid of the market because of uh, the trade issues that are going on yeah and i would say believe it or not it's, it's coming from here's the ubiquitous statement of the day right everywhere i mean imagine that you live in europe right now inflationary or deflationary environment um let's see deflationary deflationary they actually have a declining population 
overall. Now, immigration may shift that somewhat, but currently this, the demographics are such that they, uh, their birth rates are declining and populations are slated to decline. And if you have a declining population, this is sort of the Japan theory too, right? Well, what's going to stimulate inflation if everything's, if the number of people demanding things is declining? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. And if you were to look at the boond yield, right, not bond, but boond. The boond. Germans have boons, right? The German boond yield for 10 years is negative. So you can expect to put money into a 10-year German boond, and it will be worth less 10 years from now than it is today. Well, we had negative interest rates on bank accounts in Europe not right. too long ago. Yeah, NERP, as they called it, negative interest rate policy. Right? We had ZERP, too. That was Federal Reserve here in the United States. Zero interest rate policy. So ZERP and NERP. Those are just fun to say. Uh, if we think about sitting in Germany right now and going, well, I could buy a 10-year boond and lose money for sure, or I could put money in the 10-year treasury in the United States, and currently the U.S. dollar has been appreciating compared to the euro. So, so you win twice. So you win twice. So demand is coming from overseas as well as here in the United States in terms of that fear trade. So it's really created uh, an unusual environment. And this is the thing everybody's talking about. Everybody's talking about the yield curve. Well, here in this room, it's just you and I, but okay. No, I'm, Well, every pundit for the market, everybody's talking about the yield curve. Now, specifically the inverted yield curve. Now this one, this has got all kinds of potential for an attorney to just play with, right? I mean, what is an inverted yield curve? Well, let's see, a yield curve would, I would suggest that that sounds like um, as you invest money longer, you should get paid more for it. That would be the typical curve. And an inverted curve would be as I invest money longer, I get paid less for it. Yeah. So and me, why in God's name would I do that? It's a fair question, right? If you looked at the way markets are structured, right? Let's say you went to a bank and you wanted to get a savings account. Well, so for the checking accounts, they are immediately liquid. Come and go as you please. Take the money whenever you want. Savings accounts, they are still extraordinarily liquid, although there's a, a slightly less convenient than a checking account. And so they will sometimes pay a tiny bit of interest. It used to be more, but you know, lately it's still 0.0 nothing. Right. But you go into the certificate of deposit world, right? One month, three months, six months, a year, 18 months, whatever it may be. The longer that you are willing to tie up your money, presumably the more you should be compensated for it, right? So a six month CD should pay more than a three month CD. One would think. And a five-year CD should pay more than a six-month CD, right? And a 10-year treasury bond should pay more than a five-year CD. But right now, you can get six-month money for better returns than 10-year money. Well, that's not normal. That's an inverted yield curve when the short-term rates are higher than the long-term rates. And again, what is that indicating to us? crazy people running the economy? Well, not necessarily. But probably. Maybe. I mean, probably, but for unrelated reasons. Well, here's the thing. I've got a trick question for you. Who controls interest rates? 
I'm not going to tell you until after the break. Exactly. Well, stick around. When we come back, I'm going to talk about, you probably think you know, I know who controls interest rates, but you may be surprised. We're going to cover that more when we come back. This is David Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Oh, man, I'm so glad that break is over. That was a great break. It was a great break, but it was so long that I, because I'm really excited to get into this, who sets interest rates? And if you're just joining us, you're probably like, what? Look, you got to check out the podcast. You got to get caught up. You can come to, uh, I would say, go to littlejohnfs.com. And we got the podcast all there. And if you want to check past shows, those are all available as well but you can catch up on what we're going through today i've got special guest derek simmons in studio with me today and i'm your host david littlejohn of course littlejohn financial services here in town and uh we've been talking about the economy people are nervous right there's been uh some swings up and down in the market and the headlines have really gotten interesting because mostly what we have a president that has a twitter account and so that gets yeah, Derek raises eyebrows. Interesting it, at best. It makes it interesting. Okay, I'm not. I'm not making political commentary today. I'm just telling you the the tweet risk in this market is a real thing. It can sway the direction of the markets, and so as fear rises, investor behavior starts to get interesting. And one of the things we've noted is that there is a an inverted yield curve right now, meaning that short term interest rates are higher than longer term interest rates. Now, and it's persisted for a while. And this has historically been something economists pay a lot of attention to because it can be kind of a bad omen. Now, it, it suggests that everybody thinks that yields are gonna get worse in a hurry and be worse than they are in the current long they, the, term. The yields could get worse, but certainly it suggests that there's no significant inflation on the horizon. And so if that's the case, then typical investing isn't very effective. Right. If you're going to invest in something, you sort of like paddling out to the middle of a lake. There's no breeze and there's nothing else. And so you and you throw your oars in the water and you sit and wait for the current. You know, there's no current. You're not going to go anywhere. It's kind of weird to be thinking we're kind of waiting for inflation. We'd we'd like a little inflation, please. We actually engineer inflation into the economy. Right. It's part of the Federal Reserve's mandate. My God, in the 70s when mm-hmm. I was paying attention. Right? So It's a whole different deal. So when we talk about who controls interest rates, now I just threw out a big uh, Easter egg just now, but I wanna, I'm want i curious. Who controls interest rates in our economy? So I know the answer. I'm ready. I was all prepared to say it was Katie, but then it turns out she's gone and the interest rates are still, you know, stuff's happening. Yes. And uh, interestingly, though, I will say this, and this is a hint for everybody listening. Katie's part of it. Katie is on the Fed? No. Oh. Why do you say Fed? Because you always hear about the Fed adjusting. Easter egg. Good job. The Fed adjusting short-term interest rates. Yes. So the Federal Reserve and also the uh, U.S. I think it's the not Treasury Department, but Department of Treasury. I don't. I think that's how they do it. But uh, the Federal Reserve has a lot of tools that they use to manipulate interest rates, and they will attempt to do just that. They will manipulate interest rates by doing things like setting the overnight bank lending rate. Right. So if a bank needs to borrow money from another bank, they set the overnight intra-bank lending rate. Okay. Also, 
the Federal Reserve can do things like they can set reserve requirements. This is not often talked about, by the way. But if you think about banks don't keep all of the money that you give them on deposit. They loan it back out to other people. Right, but they have to have special mattresses where they store their own reserve money. Okay, yeah, let's run with that. Yeah. That seems totally reasonable. Derek said that, not me. <laughs> um, so, And I say mattresses because that's the place you put your money in if you're not going to invest it in anything. You're just going to hold it. Yeah. Again, we're going to work on your financial education offline. Okay. I'm winking. Everybody can see that, right? No, it's. I get it. It's hilarious. And here's the thing. Uh, it's actually a clever way to think about the way that, that banks do this because banks don't lend out all the money. How much money don't they lend? Uh, maybe 5%. Yeah. As little as possible. If you're a bank, in fact... This is this will really blow people away. If you're not into accounting, uh, there's a real basic equation when you talk about uh, your balance sheet. You have two things. You have assets, and the other is liabilities. Correct. My, my favorite topic. Assets and liabilities. So, what is a bank asset? Well, a bank asset would be a loan to someone. It's a note receivable. Correct. And what is a bank liability. What is a bank liability? Deposits, because they have to pay interest on the deposits. Now, banks love non-interest bearing deposits, but they're a flight risk, right? Checking accounts are flight risk money. They're less stable. Yeah, I'll take it out and put it somewhere where I'll get something. Correct. And so what banks do to secure the money is they offer CDs. And the CD rate will incentivize people to keep that money in the bank. It becomes more predictable and it becomes a part of their reserve requirement. So all of this is tied into the system that the Federal Reserve gets to manipulate. Because if assets for banks are loans, right? For you and me, if we have a loan, that's a liability. But for the bank, they're getting paid for those loans. So they're assets. So banks live in opposite land of you and me. Well, the Federal Reserve can set the requirement for how much money a bank has to put in their mattress. Right. Okay, so your mattress analogy was good. It was, I agree. And the, the idea here is if you want to change the amount of money in circulation in the economy, that's one of the levers you can pull as the Fed. If I increase the reserve requirements, what have I effectively done? You've taken money out of circulation. Nailed it. Exactly, because the banks can't lend as much out. And if the money is not lended out in circulation in the economy, money out of the economy, right? So it's like taking wind out of the sail. If I want to be stimulative with the banking system, what you do I do? You reduce the reserve requirements. Exactly. So lower reserve requirements means the bank keeps less in the mattress and loans more money out. Now, some of you are probably climbing the drapes right now going, well, that's the what caused 2008 in the first place is those idiot banks that didn't know how to manage their assets and liabilities. To which I would say, kind of. You know, there was, um, it wasn't directly banking. Most of the commercial banking was okay. Where the problem was, was the mortgage side of the equation. And it was when you had a lot of borrowers with lousy collateral, the housing market was fragile and it was over, it was a bubble, right? So you had lousy collateral and then you had people that were qualified by the lending institution, but they were, they were not well qualified, meaning they were screened, but the screening intentionally overlooked deficiencies. And then those people 
failed to make their payments and once that happened then the banks had to collect the collateral that was you know taking and adding more inventory to a market that was already oversaturated created a house of cards so the federal reserve has these tools that it uses right i'm not going to go into the whole collapse of 08 i'm just going to say it happened banks were totally involved in it and the federal reserve knows it learned a lot of lessons they, they changed requirements for lending it's harder to get loans now right. than it was 10 years ago and they have changed the reserve requirements and other tests that banks have to achieve in order to be banks essentially so, so you're about to tie this back to who sets interest rates right yeah okay let's check so all I, I tell you that whole story to tell you this the federal reserve manipulates interest rates but it doesn't set them all it can do is set the rate that banks lend to each other who sets the rate would that be everybody else yes that's katie and all of you right the marketplace sets the rates we just talked about the 10-year treasury when everybody's afraid they buy the 10-year treasury because it's the flight to safety that increases demand which raises the price which lowers the yield which affects the cost of capital in the economy I, just for a second there i thought we were going on a dr seuss book but i know and and green eggs and ham and yes. not with a fox not in a box not with the fed not if i'm never mind so you get the idea interest rates are set by the economy itself and so if the economy is not expected to grow interest rates will begin to decline and now you can understand why economists are so concerned about an inverted yield curve right and why it is so paramount that the intervening or manipulating factors get it right now we have a president that will tweet all day long federal reserve should lower rates should lower rates should lower rates but what's he really saying what he's saying is i want low rates because I think it's stimulative for the economy. That's what that's the case that he's making. But low rates in in also are well, we better stimulate the economy because our expectation of inflation in the future is pretty low. So we lower the rates to encourage more capital to be loaned out at a lower price so it circulates in the economy to be stimulative. So what are the odds that the Fed instead decides to reduce reserve requirements? I don't think the Fed is going to mess with reserve requirements much. Not at this time. And the reason is because we've seen such consolidation in banking. You know, we've seen a lot fewer banks now with the 2008 debacle and the death of many regional banks mostly. Right. The the the, the tweener sized banks all got gobbled up by bigger banks or they got conglomerated together into bigger regional banks. So there are fewer banks than there were some time ago. And that was deliberate, I, I believe. I think the federal, uh, the FDIC, right, and the, the federal, the FOMC, right, those, the, the, the Fed groups, but FDIC specifically wanted fewer banks to regulate. They just didn't want as many to watch. So they created rules that, you know, some lived and some didn't live. So what's left now is fewer banks but they've gotten larger and then we get into the too big to fail arena right so too big to fail means there's major consequences to the economy if those banks don't survive so i think it's unlikely that the fed loosens the grasp too much on these mega banks 
because this is the old adage if you give them an inch they'll take a mile right if you let if you let them out of the stringent requirements for maintaining adequate reserves to prevent another 2008 from happening then another 2008 is more likely to happen so I don't think they'll mess with that. I think they'll mess with interest rates a whole lot first. And I think they'll mess with quantitative easing if they have to, which is when the Federal Reserve buys the bonds themselves. Like the 10-year Treasury, because, well, how can it possibly, who's going to pay that for a, uh, for a bond right now? You get no yield on it. Who's going to pay for that? And the federal government comes out and says, well, we would definitely borrow the money at next to nothing. And then the the, so not the rather the federal government wants the money right Congress will say we'll spend it right sure and the Federal Reserve says okay well you guys print the treasuries and we'll buy them we'll print money and we'll buy the treasuries and we'll force the rates even lower by being the demand in the bond market and that's what quantitative easing was is an artificial demand to drive down interest rates the reason they call it quantitative easing is because it sounds like incest it sounds like magic something that shouldn't work it's literally money printing now without the print i said maybe not literally they did that too but it is money creation okay it using the computer oh well one department creates the debt obligation and the other system just conjures up money and says great we bought it what they are doing is they are engineering inflation by doing that, right? They're forcing more money into circulation. Because they are creating more money. Literally creating more and money. And then they're putting it into use. They're not stuffing it into right. bank mattresses. Right. But it doesn't go into the economy, so it doesn't necessarily inflate goods yet. What it does is it alters the currency supply, right? But if it doesn't get into the hands of the consumer, and do keep in mind... The U.S. economy is still approximately 70% consumer-driven. If the end user doesn't get the money, how can they buy goods and services and increase the demand on goods and services, which ultimately drives the price of those up, which is the inflationary pressure? I don't know. Nor do I. Katie probably knows. Katie would know. Um, but she's not here, so we're going to have to conjure up our own answer. So there are a number of things that are relevant here for you as an individual investor. But what we want to talk about is I've got investors out there that are trying to figure out, well, what do we do if there's no, there's no yield in the fixed income markets? How to save or survive? What can you do as an investor in this marketplace, especially with the stock market looking so uncomfortable? Yes, well, I would like my accountant to be, account to be too big to fail. That would be remarkable. Uh, I, me too. So, but but for the rest of us that live in real life land, what do we do? Are you what do we tell do me? when interest rates are super super low as investors? And yes, I am going to tell you right after, after this break. The break. So, well played, Derek. Way to catch on to the clues. And for the rest of you listening, if you want to know what you need to be doing as an investor in these low interest rate environments, or at least considerations, uh, we're going to cover that more when we come back. This is David Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN. Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show, where I have special in studio guests today, my favorite attorney, 
Mr. Derek Simmons. It's always good to be here. And I appreciate you pinch hitting, right? We have uh, Katie couldn't make it today, but uh, we have been talking all kinds of shop. And if you, again, I'm going to remind you, check out the podcast if you want to get caught up on this stuff. It's actually a, a pretty good walk through the park of how the market sets interest rates. And so uh, the, the issue is, and let me just summarize it this way if you're just now joining us. Interest rates are low, right? Which, if you're borrowing money, is great. Is great. That's what I want to do all day. Yeah. But if you're investing, that's not so great, especially if you're in a fixed income environment where maybe you're, uh, you don't want to take on the, the risk of being in the stock market. So what do you do as an investor when there's very, very low yields? Well, the temptation is, well, the temptation is real estate. Yeah. Okay. So talk, talk me through that. Okay. I well, don't disagree, but just talk, talk our listeners through it. It's, it's not a bargain, but it's a long-term um, investment. And if I can borrow cheaply and then expect to make more money than the cost of borrowing it, then it's a really good deal. Yeah. But what is attractive about real estate, and this is what happens with a lot of investments is when the yields get really low, it's cheap to borrow. And so people will leverage their investments to increase returns. Now, what do I mean by that? That's a great question. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So leverage is when you take some money and use it to control even more money than you started with. So let's say that I wanted to buy real estate. Well, it's typical if I want to buy a house and I want to be in a conforming marketplace, then I want about 20% of the value of that real estate as my deposit. And then somebody else is loaning the other 80%. And somebody else is loaning me the 80%. And they're doing it cheaply because right. and, interest and rates. It will cost me with the cost of that 80% has interest that it's going to be charged. But if we think about this in really simple numbers, if I could get a $100,000 piece of real estate and I could put $20,000 down to control it, I have $80,000 of somebody else's money. So I have leverage of four to one. Right. Right. Uh, that means that my $20,000, but, but my, my $20,000 controls a $100,000 asset. Here's where it's kind of clever. Let's say that I own the asset for two years and I'm not going to talk about taxes. I'm just going to talk about the way leverage works. So I own an asset for two years and it grows 5% a year and my costs of interest is 5% per year. Okay, so I have 5% on $80,000, which is $4,000. My $100,000 property is grown to 105,000 and then I'm gonna keep the, the math simple, we'll just do straight line uh, growth. So 5,000 for the next two years, so it's worth 110,000. So I gained 10,000 and, and I spent 4,000. Right, 4,000 oh, for years. each year, two yes. years. So I've gained 10,000, but it cost me eight. I've made $2,000, right? Which on my total appreciation after cost was 2%. But when I sell it, I pay back the $80,000 and I have $22,000 now. Well, I put 20,000 in and now I have 22,000. So that's a 10% return. It's a 10% return over those two years, even though the property only appreciated 5%. After my cost to carry, paying the interest, that's the benefit of leverage. It can enhance the return. Now, it could hurt you if the price, if it doesn't go up in value, 
right? So that's the trade. But that's where I think real estate is an interesting marketplace right now because the cost of capital is so low and the demand for real estate is so high. Well, the demand, though, pushes up the, the, the purchase price. It does. So maybe you can borrow it cheaper, but you have to borrow a bigger number. Right. So none, there's, you know, none of this is a sure thing kind of stuff. But one of the places that investors can look in the marketplace, and let me qualify this right now by saying I'm not about to give you investment advice. You need to vet this for your personal circumstance. And this is a radio show. Okay, This is where you can come to learn concepts. But you don't come and say, well, so-and-so on the radio told me to do this. Nuh-uh. You, you take that liability on your own hands. I'm not telling you how to invest your money, but I'm telling you here's a place to do some homework. Real estate markets are interesting because there are a lot of ways to invest in commercial real estate without having to buy the real estate directly. You can invest through third parties, whether it be a real estate trust, whether it be a, which is, can be either publicly traded or non-traded. There are mutual funds that purchase real estate. There are exchange-traded funds that deal in real estate. There are exchange-traded notes that deal in real estate. So there are lots of different ways to access the market that deals in real estate. And many of these commercial real estate funds will fluctuate in value somewhat, but they have pretty solid yields, somewhere between 4 and 7% yields for real estate funds. Compare that to a 10-year treasury at 1.5%. I like it better. It's much better. So those are some things to look at, is that there are areas of the market that are still making money. Who else makes money when cost of capital is low? I don't know. Who else does? Loan originators. Everybody's borrowing well, when the cost true. of capital is low. So the originators are turning over lots and lots of loans. So there are real estate plays that are derivatives of the origination environment as well. So uh, it's, it's interesting to borrow a phrase from Jim, Jim Cramer, if you've ever heard of him. He's a, you know, a, a radio and television personality around investing. But he, said, there's all, he says there's always a bull market somewhere. Well, I won't say there's always a bull market somewhere, but the market's always functioning somewhere that's profitable, even if it's counterintuitive, right? You can make money when the market goes down, right? Everybody, everybody heard that one, right? Yeah. You can make money when the markets go down. How do you do it? That's a great question. You're about to take a break, aren't you? I'm going to make you wait Damn until you. after our last break. And then we'll talk about markets are going down. How can you make money? Or let's say the markets may or may not go down. How can you protect yourself? Because I think that's what a lot of people want to know. So we'll cover that in our final segment when we come back. This is David Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN. Welcome back to the True Wealth Show, gang. And for all of you investors out there that have been holding your breath for the last segment, it is finally here. And in the last few minutes, we've got some gold for you. Now, a bunch of good stuff on today's show uh, in terms of getting educated about the way interest rates function and how you can start to look at the markets and analyze them and find opportunities in the marketplace, even when things are counterintuitive, right? Uh, so in studio with me, unpacking all of this, Mr. Derek Simmons. Derek, I had a pop quiz right at the break, and it was... What do I do with my money if... But how do you make money if the yeah. markets go down? And or how do I make money 
Well, I probably would want to buy something that paid better if the markets went down. Is that a cheating answer? It seems like it is. You know what I love about attorneys? They are so clever with their phrasing, right? <laughs> uh, because, you know, it's like, I try, you know, I'll try to tie you down. He's like, I, I saw you do that, what, but whoop. <laughs> what is that thing I want to buy? <laughs> yes. Well, um, here's the thing about markets, and this is a, uh, it's, it happens in more ways than you think, but the stock market's a great way to, to look at, uh, to understand this is that you can make money when the markets go up, and you can also make money when the markets go down. The tough part is getting it right, which direction things are headed. Right? If you honestly believed that a company was going to go out of business, okay? So, so let's, I mean, just pick I would one. sell it short. Right. What does that mean? That means I am going to uh, promise to buy at a lower price. I'm going to sell right now at today's price. So here's what literally happens. You are going to borrow somebody else's shares. You are going to sell them in the marketplace. And then, with the expectation that the market later falls, you will repurchase those shares and give them back. Okay, now that sounds weird, but this happens in real life. I've used this example on the show before, but it's probably been a year or two. Uh, you see this happen in car dealerships. Derek shows up and wants to buy a brand new Corvette. I don't know why, but that's the car I picked. They're really pretty. Okay. And you say, I really want a what color? Red. A red one. But Candy you know, apple red. All we have is black or yellow. So what am I going to do with that dealership? Paint the car. Negative. Okay. <laughs> I am going to say... Absolutely. We've got a red one. Let us, let's get that paperwork done and I will have it delivered for you tomorrow. And then I call the dealership up in Portland and I buy it and I bring it in and I sell it to you. Well, I'm going to sell it to you first at the price and I'm going to buy it at the lower price from the other dealership, bring it in and make my markup that way. I sold it first, borrowing the other dealership's car. And then once I brought it in and delivered it, I you know made good on my commitment. Ah, and that's what happens in the stock market too. Is there's actually a mechanical process where, because what happens if you can't find any shares to borrow? You you can't short it. So that means if nobody wants to, well, what puts somebody in a position that they would loan you their shares? So usually it's part of the agreement that you have with your custodian. As an example. Uh, let's say that I have a brokerage account and my custodian has a margin agreement. Part of the margin agreement says, are you willing to make your securities lendable for short sales? And if so, we will pay you interest when they're loaned out. You still get the benefit of owning the shares, right? They're still credited on your account as if you're the owner, but they will use them in their inventory to allow somebody else to borrow in short. Now, this gets a little bit into the hocus pocus of how custodians act and, and, and what they do. Uh, and, and so I don't want to get into the mechanics of it per se, because for one thing, that's actually not my area of expertise. We can get into an area where I go like, I actually don't know the answer to that part. But I don't deal in that world. I just know that that's how they do it. Right. Right. So the custodial agreement will get you as as the owner of securities are giving them permission to loan them out. It, and, and again, you still get the credit as if they are yours on the statement. They have, they're then on the hook for getting them back to you. 
Okay. Right. But the way they deal with that is the customer that wants to borrow them also has a margin account. And if that customer has a problem, then they have to conjure up the money in their account. So they need to have money on hand in order to borrow in the first place. So they'll reclaim the shares from them and do a margin call if they have to. You're right. It sounds just like hocus pocus. It's a little hocus pocus, although it is regulated and it does function the way it's supposed to. So uh, nevertheless, that's how you'd make money if the markets are going down. You know, there's another tool that's very useful if you're unsure of the direction of the market or if you do have a strong opinion about the direction of the market. Are you going to talk about hedging now? Well, hedging is this is one of the tools that you would use to hedge. Okay. Okay. Now hedging has a sort of vague meaning. And so in our case, we're simply going to use the the hedge means that we're going to do something to mitigate our risk. Okay. So maybe uh, in simple terms, if I own a company that manufactures golf balls, that's a summer sport. If I want to hedge, I'm going to also own a company that manufactures ski equipment because that's a different season. And so when one of them's doing well, the other one may be underperforming and vice versa because there's some seasonality. They are a hedge for each other, right? But that's a sort of natural hedge. What we're going to talk about is uh, creating a hedge. It's not a fully synthetic, but in a sense is a synthetic hedge, meaning we're going to use derivatives. That's oh, great. Options. Now, now we're talking about 2008 again, derivatives. Well, derivatives are, remember what a derivative is, is, hey, I have a thing, and then related to the thing, I create another thing. It's a derivation of the first thing. So the most common in the stock market environment are options. Options is, hey, Derek, I own 100 shares of Microsoft. You would like 100 shares of Microsoft. I would. If you would like to buy them from me, I will give you the option. You could buy an option, which will mean that you can now control the 100 shares of Microsoft that I own. And you can buy either a call option or a put option. Now, a call means you get the option to buy it for a stated price. And a put means you get the option to sell at a stated price. The option is not forever. It's for a stated amount of time. So I sell you the option. I collect the money from you. And let's say that you want a call option. We'll invent the numbers. Let's say Microsoft's $150 a share. And you think it's going to go to $200 a share within the next three months. So I want a three-month call option to buy at 150 Correct. Now, if you were to do that, you would be buying an at-the-money call because 150 is exactly the value of the stock today. You would be paying a certain amount of premium because for the next three months, you get to control the stock that I own. So, like, now, is there a percentage or how do you it, know? The market sets the price depending on expectations, right? So supply and demand will actually set the price there. But... If, if, for example, Microsoft had come out with a cool new machine just a minute ago. And, and it rockets up to $250 a share, you are really happy. But I mean, um, when we're setting the price for the option, what, what goes into knowing the price yeah, for the option? Yeah, well, much of that. So the, the, the time, how, how, how in the money or out of the money is the option, meaning is the $150 
is it is it close to the current price or is it above or below the current? Yeah, price? so, so the like option. I could buy a cheaper option if I would buy it at one hundred and sixty dollars. Correct, because then it, Microsoft has to grow past one hundred and sixty. Right. So you could buy it at a lower price than if you bought a one hundred and forty dollar option, which is already in the money. So you know there's some intrinsic value to the option. Right. Okay. So you get a sense of how this works, and bottom line is that you can use those options to hedge. So if you're thinking that I own this Microsoft stock, I think it's going to fall, I could maybe buy put options. That's the right for me to sell the stock at $150. So if it falls, I'm protected. Now, if it goes up, I lose my money. But hey, that's how insurance works. So is this is this something that you do in your office? So in some forms, yes. We don't typically buy the options directly, but we work with certain instruments that are hedged or are buying options. So yeah, it's all part of a comprehensive strategy built around how much risk you want to take and what we believe the conditions in the marketplace are. So look, uh, unfortunately, we are running up against the clock. And so what I'm going to tell you all out there as investors is do your homework on this stuff. And if you've got more questions, give our office a call. Uh, Little John Financial Services at 541-375-0898. And if you're just wondering about it, look, we do free consults for people all the time. Okay. And you don't have to come into the office even. We do digital consults. If you want to do a video conference or something like that, can be arranged and we're happy to do so. Uh, now, the attorney side of it, you know, I always like to make sure our guests get a good plug, Derek. We certainly you do estate planning in the area, but also uh, you do corporate business law, and business law, and so forth. Yes. So if you find yourself wondering, hey, what kind of entity should I be selecting for, and how do I get an LLC started or whatever it is, Derek is your man. How do they reach you? Watkinson Laird Rubenstein six seven three five five two eight. All right. So there you go, gang. So um, well. As we run up against the clock, I'll simply remind you all, uh, we're also on Facebook. We've got littlejohnfs.com, all those great ways to contact us. And uh, we're going to be adding more videos. So if you're looking for more Q&A time, more and more of that's going to be showing up on the website. So I'd encourage you to join us there and uh, catch us on Facebook and all that good stuff. But we're out of time for now. So until next time, Derek, thank you as always. Thank you. All right. And uh, yep, with that, we'll sign off. Katie will be back next week, I imagine. But until then, this has been David Littlejohn with Littlejohn Financial Services and Derek Simmons with Watkinson Laird. We'll catch you next time.